JJ, if it wasn't for your voice on the audiobook, I don't know that I would have listened to Scrum <laughs> or read through it so many more times, but it's always a pleasure to hear your voice. Well, thank you. And talk about our favorite subject, one of our favorite subjects, I hope. <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me, Felipe. Scrum has been a game changer for me. I start off with reading the Red Book and being one of his classes. And since then, I've seen you guys, uh, you and him, all over the place, all over the internet, sharing <laughs> Scrum with all kinds of industries. Like uh, Jeff had told me, I was one of his first construction people. And now we've got a whole little pocket of that uh, going worldwide. So just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the EBFC Show, the easier, better for construction podcast. I'm your host, Felipe Engineer Manriquez. This show is all about the business of construction. Today's episode is sponsored by the Lean Construction Institute. LCI is working to lead the building industry and in transforming its practices and culture. Its vision is to create a healthy and thriving industry that delivers outstanding project outcomes every time for everyone. Check the show notes for more information. Today's episode is also sponsored by Construction Accelerator. Construction Accelerator is an online learning system for teams and individuals that offers short, in-depth videos on numerous lean topics for builders and designers to discuss and implement just like on this podcast. This is tangible knowledge at your fingertips in the field, in the office, or at home. Support your lean learning at your own pace. Visit trycanow.com. Now, to the show. Before we get too crazy, JJ, and get tell people a little bit of who you are. Sure. Um, my name is JJ Sutherland. I'm the CEO of Scrum Inc., which is the company founded by my father, Jeff Sutherland, who uh, invented Scrum back in 1993. First Scrum Sprint was 1994. And we do consulting and training uh, all over the world. Um, and we have, uh, you know, uh, we have Scrum in Japan. We're working in APAC or working in Europe. Uh, we do, interestingly, most of our clients are not uh, software or IT. Um, as Felipe, as you said, you know, we're doing a lot of work in construction. You were one of the leaders in that. Um, and so what I find really interesting, I don't come from a technical background, is really working with groups of people and who are just trying to get stuff done. And it doesn't really matter whether you're in software, whether you're in construction, whether you're in defense, whether you're in oil and gas, whether you're in automotive, it doesn't matter. It's just, that's what I really like about scrums. It's really a way for just about anybody to just to get stuff done, which is really fascinating to me. Thank you, JJ. Appreciate that. And uh, I know you've got a background in journalism. You worked at NPR for a while. And I tried my best to find out through listening to your different interviews and podcasts. And in my research, JJ, I failed to iterate enough to find out when did you learn about scrum? I learned about Scrum um, back in 2009. I mean, my father obviously had been talking about process improvement and all that yeah. kind of stuff for decades. And I was covering, so I was Baghdad bureau chief for NPR for, God, like eight years. And so what I would spend half my year in Baghdad and half my year back uh, in Washington, D.C., where NPR is based, and I would do various different things. Um, this particular time, I was working, I was covering the Pentagon. And my editor at the time uh, asked me, okay, well, we've done all these stories in Iraq about, you know, the strategy and the troops and the, the, all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there are like 100 attacks each day in Iraq on coalition forces. And that means a lot of blown up Humvees. Yeah. And I said, what happens to all those Humvees? And I said, I don't know. Let me find out. <laughs> and what happens is they end up at uh, the Red River Army Depot 
just outside of Texarkana, Texas, in East Texas. And if you've never been to East Texas, there's a, a whole lot of nothing in East Texas. But there's oh, I've been. Depot. You've been to East Texas. You so you know a lot of family there. Yeah. Uh, and so it's a it's a lovely area, but that is gigantic uh, area. And so this Army Depot is a few thousand jobs. It's like the economic engine of its area. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's only one person in uniform at this place, the colonel in charge. Everyone else is civilian uh, workforce, you know, unionized labor, all, all that stuff. And when the war started in 2003, this depot could fix three Humvees a week. Wow. And you're getting 100 attacks a day. Three Humvees a week is not going to cut it. And so the Pentagon was actually going to outsource it, shut it down, outsource it, Oshkosh, call it a day. And so the colonel didn't want that to happen. I mean, this is uh, thousands of jobs in an area that right. you know, really needs jobs. And so he went to Ford and GM and said, well, how do you do it? And what he did is over the course of about 18 months, he installed a uh, lean construction line mm-hmm. and lean production line, it's just, which you know, comes out of the Toyota production system. It's just magical. So I went and I saw it and it was just like the... Yeah, you know, the parts would sort of float through the air and just come right when the worker needed it to put on the door. (laughs) And it's just magical. And then uh, they also, instead of fixing the Humvees, they decided to uh, take all them, take them all apart. And listen, you go there, they're blown up Humvees as far as I can see, like (laughs) under trees and fields and just everywhere. What they did is they took them apart down to the last nut and bolt and built new ones out of the good pieces because that was faster. And over the course of, um, about 18 months, they went from doing being able to do three uh, a week to 40 a day. Oh, my God. That's amazing, JJ. And it was the same people. Even they more impressive. change the people. And so that blew my mind. And so I went, uh, called my father from the motel in Texarkana where I was staying. And I uh, then said, okay, maybe this process improvement thing, you're on to something. And so I went and I took a scrum master course from him. And then I went back to Baghdad and <laughs> I started doing bits and pieces. You know, I did like a stand daily stand up. You know, I did, you know, you know, made work visible. I put up a big board where the state of all the stories are. And then, uh, but I didn't do, you know, full on scrum. I didn't do that until uh, 2011 when the Arab spring happened and the Arab spring uh, started in January, it reached uh, Cairo in January of that year. And when it started, um, we didn't know how big the story is, like a Friday, I think. We didn't know how big the story was going to be. And so we didn't send a whole bunch of people in. We sent uh, the um, uh, Jerusalem correspondent to work with a Cairo correspondent to start the story. Mm-hmm. And you probably know broadcast, or can surmise anyway, broadcast correspondents don't play well together. Because they have I've seen some movies and they, yeah, they, they seem to have like, some rivalry. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's a real competition. There's only so many minutes of airtime. Right. Someone's going to get it. Someone isn't. So um, they fought all weekend and they blew deadlines. They didn't get it to story out. And so on Sunday, they called me and said, JJ, uh, we want you to go fix this. So we're going to fl- fly in and we're going to send three more correspondents. This turns out to be a really big story. And so I flew there. And it was, you know, middle of the night, there's dust on curfew, I was sitting in baggage claim. And so the only way I think I can do this is scrum. But I'm not going to, you can't use any of the words because they would say, oh, that's just, you know, management, <laughs> you know, garbage. 
you know, yeah, fat. we're journalists. We don't have time <laughs> yeah, for that. We need a process. And, <laughs> and I wait. And I, I wait. And I just put up. You know, literally just took out post its and said, "What's the most important thing we have to do today?" Okay, we need a live hit from there. What's most important? That's the next most important thing. Made it visible. We had a scrum board. We did you know retrospectives. You know, twice a day we we're doing twelve hour sprints because we had a morning show and an evening show. And uh, then, you know, I'd say, okay, what are the, what are things slowing us down? It could be anything from, oh, we need, you know, better hit on the satellite to, you know, at one point, one of our correspondents was picked up by the Mukhabarat, the secret police. And they're like, yeah, that's slowing us down because, you know, Corey went us in jail. So can you get him out of jail? <laughs> I didn't realize that. he'd been jailed. He should was, put that on his resume. <laughs> it was, so it was amazing. And it was just this sort of fractious group of individuals became a team so quickly that it blew my mind. And that, uh, Later on that year is when I said to my father, let's, let's write a book. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm so glad that you had to have that horrible experience, JJ, because <laughs> I never would have come across it. Like in, uh, I, I was, uh, dabbling in the lean construction, lean space, studying everything I could after somebody a decade ago told me that there's Felipe, there's another way to build. And I was like, nah, it sounds too good to be true. And I got involved and it was because I was reading all these books about lean that, uh, Amazon, a company we both know made a recommendation and it recommended your book to me. And, uh, I said, well, this is an interesting red cover. It's like danger. It's a danger <laughs> cover. <laughs> so it caught my eye, JJ. And, uh, man, I devoured it like in less than three days at that time, I had a really long commute. Uh, so I can, I nearly finished the book in just two back and forths, uh, driving from orange County in California to LA County. Uh, the traffic that's a is brutal commute. That's, that's a it's, brutal commute. I lived in LA. <laughs> <laughs> it's legendary traffic. I'd always be looking at the map mystified. Like it's just 50 miles. Why did it take three hours today? It doesn't even <laughs> seem real. The commute was so long, JJ. I had to start, you know, deciding when to stop drinking liquid so that I can make it all the way home <laughs> without having to go to the bathroom. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah. brutal, man. But, uh, no, your, your book and, and the way you tell it, it's uh, it's so impactful. And I'm a huge history fanatic. I love to study the reason how things came together. And and you guys tell such a good story. And in the Scrum Field book, the book that you wrote recently, when did that get published? Uh, in the fall of 2019. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just a year ago. Yeah. So before COVID, nice. Yeah. And what I really like in, in, the, in this book, and I think it's a great second book to, to build upon the Red Book. Because it, you're given all these stories, and now it's in so many different places where it's way beyond software, which it's always been. But a lot of people don't realize that. It's just software was the first group of people, I think, to coalesce around Scrum. Mm -hmm. And then now other groups, you give all these examples. And I wanted to ask you, uh, as a follow-on question, like, I know that Scrum is older than Agile, hands down, mm -hmm. undeniable. All the signers of the Agile Manifesto typically acknowledge it in their speeches. But uh, what from Agile of the core principles is the most important to you? I'm going to I'm going to test you on your ability to prioritize of the four values. Which one do you find the most important? Responding to change over following a plan without a question. I think we've learned that this past year that, <laughs> you know, we can have a lot of plans. I mean, I had a lot of plans in January of this year. I had a lot of plans. <laughs> and by <laughs> yeah. March, all yeah. of those went out the window. And um, and I think in my experience and talking to my clients and talking to, you know, just to people who do Scrum, that the agile, 
people who are practicing agile, you know, whether Scrum or other versions, I mean, Scrum is like 75, 77% of all agile teams use Scrum, depending on what mm -hmm. you believe. True. But those teams that were agile had a much easier time switching to remote quickly. I know we did overnight. Um, right on. It was a Saturday when my, the product owner of our public courses and she and I called each other saying, we have a course on Tuesday that we cannot run. It's irresponsible. And I said, yep, but we're going to do it virtually. And she said, but it's Saturday and we're, it's going on Tuesday. It's going to be horrible. I said, listen, the first 10 of these are going to be horrible. But let's, let's, let's get them out of the way as fast as possible. <laughs> <laughs> let's fail fast and learn. Exactly. So we did. And um, I know I've heard that story, the similar kind of story of just being able to really just flip a switch from a number of different agile teams that I've worked with. Um, and so that is also the other thing about responding to change is it it allows this ability to adapt quickly. And as there's this classic you know line, you know, it's not I'm going to misquote it here. Uh, it's not the strongest species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the ones most responsive to change. And yeah. I think we've seen that over this past year. And we see I always talk about that there's you know, a technological curve, you know, the sort of hyperbolic technological curve, which is causing all sorts of change in all areas of our society and our culture. And it's, you know, it's so fast that we can't even see the rate of the rate of change. But right. if you look at COVID infections in the United States, that's a hyperbolic curve. And we're in the midst of yeah. that. And being able to adjust to that pace of change, I think, is really difficult without some sort of agile uh practice yeah and at the time of this recording for those of you listening later trying to trying to listen in order of the shows the shows don't have an order people you just watch them in any order you want the uh we're in december of 2020 and we're having a surge in covid cases in the united states unprecedented and i think we're we're beyond the prediction models that we saw early in march and april it's horrible it's really horrible what's going on that horribleness that you talked about in that responding to change. I appreciate that. That's your answer. I, I had no presupposition of what I thought, which one you'd go to JJ. So it was a nice surprise. I left myself open for the surprise. <laughs> I really like that one too. And it's one of my favorites of the four as well. But I wanted to ask you with, you know, with that being the case in your book, you talked about something that I didn't think would be in your book. I was completely taken aback by what you talked about in fear. And I'm not going to ask you for your your canned fear answer because it's in the book and people should definitely pick it up and read it. But when you talk about the fear that people have and the research that you had from the, uh, the doctor, I'm forgetting his name that looked at how people revert back and become in this downloading state. Yeah. That, uh, I mean, even you, even me, I'm as guilty too. Like I wouldn't have adopted scrum unless I was getting crushed at work. I mean, that's, that's why it made it easy for me to adopt it because my back was against the wall. I was in the corner and you, you went, you had that experience in Texas that you're fi like, finally, you're like, all right, dad, you've been talking about this forever. I'm ready to listen now. I've seen something, <laughs> right? That fear to change, I think is, is worth talking about for a second because you guys are working with, from, from what I can see, sometimes even fortune 10 companies, fortune 100, fortune 200. You're dealing with what everybody would consider a successful company by all stretches of the imagination until you start to dig in. And I love the way that you and your dad dig into stuff and you, you really know what is working and what's not. What are you seeing with, with these large successful companies 
as far as fear inside of these organizations. If you could share just a couple stories, that'd be awesome to, for people listening that are like on the fence, like, should I even bother reading 12 pages of the updated scrum guide? Is this something for my organization? I mean, I'm biased and I say, yes, it is. And listen to JJ. I I completely agree. So what's happening is there's a lot of fear out there because the world is changing. There is this bank, European bank, like one of the biggest banks on the planet, you know, trillions of dollars under management. And they called me up and I said, well, why are you calling me? You have all the money, all the money. (laughs) And they said, well, no one wants to work for us. No one wants to work for us. We can't get talent. And we're having these little fintech startups come and slice bits and pieces of the value chain. Another bank, Deutsche Telekom, was telling my father around the same time that um, Amazon went into Germany and started making personal loans, you know, small five, ten thousand dollar loans. Took Deutsche Bank like three weeks to approve those. Took Amazon three seconds. Wow. And the Deutsche Bank says, you know, we've lost that business forever. But what if they do that to mortgages yeah. where our real money is? I think that the a lot of these really large companies are afraid of being disrupted. I think what re- the one that really scared them was Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry, you know, multi, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in real estate, all of a sudden doesn't matter. Like it's complete disruption. I think that's one that I hear a lot about people being frightened about. They see the speed at which sort of the tech giants of Amazon and Google and Apple, et cetera, are doing it. And they're really worried about some of those just completely taking away their business. I mean, Amazon is scary. Uh, you know, the like most tech companies, can mm-hmm. release, you know, once every couple of weeks, like software companies, you know, a couple of few, some can do it every day. Amazon does it more than once a second. <laughs> That's and, incredible. you know, Amazon's not a perfect company by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not sure if I'd want to work there, but yeah. they're fast. They're really fast. And so with that kind of speed and like, oh, there's about a couple of years ago when they said, oh, we might get into the healthcare or the pharmacy market. And you think you've seen over the past couple of years, all these massive multi-billion dollar healthcare mergers, that's because they're frightened because this technological disruption is really, really changing things forever. It's going to continue to change things at a more uh, faster rate. I mean, it's just amazing. And, you know, like you know, DeepMind the other day just figured out protein folding. Something people have been trying to do is a massive AI, uh, Google AI project. That people are trying to figure out for 50 years. DeepMind also does the Go. That's one of the things it does, you know, becomes the Go master. And they finally got it. So the latest version, I was reading an interview with the CEO, uh, became uh, the best Go player on the planet really, really quickly. And the reason was, is it stopped learning from humans. It was freed from humans learning. So it taught itself. (laughs) (laughs) And so that kind of stuff is going on. And, uh, it's just remarkable. Yeah, it's like you said in the book, JJ, like uh, every day we go to sleep and we wake up and re- by decision, we recreate our organizations all over again. And now you've got a non-sleeping entity just iterating all night, 24 hours a day. <laughs> yeah. You know, a buddy of mine who's big in AI, I said, you know, what are you afraid of? And he goes, I'm really afraid there'll be a strong AI that is really just obsessed with making more and more perfect spheres and will enslave the entire human race <laughs> into making spheres. <laughs> That's a that's a valid fear. I watch enough sci-fi to to understand. Well, if you've played Universal Paperclips, I highly recommend it. It's a no, I haven't played it. Yet. Own game, and basically you're an a you play an AI whose entire purpose in life is to make paperclips. <laughs> we'll have to get a link to that uh, in the description, JJ, for people that want to play some some it's a great games. Game. 
Yeah, but that's awesome. I want to pull on a on another thread. Uh, your organization at Scrum Inc. and your, you know, your, are you like what's the? I know outside the to the rest of the world, you're the CEO of Scrum Incorporated, but inside the company, what's your title? What? Let me ask you this way, JJ. What role are you playing inside the company? I'm a team member. Nice. Yeah, I I don't have time to be a product owner. I am a product <laughs> owner. I and then, uh, you know, some of the chief product owners report to me. But mm -hmm. I, I'm more of a stakeholder. I mean, I don't. I say, you know, these are the, this is the big level strategy and prioritization. You go figure out how to do it. Um, but yeah, I'm just a team member, which is the most important role in Scrum. Right on, right. On. And I like that your your consistent use of the team member, not developer, or not development team member. I prefer the term team member, but you know, I'm not Jeff and Ken, so they get, <laughs> they get to use they get to tell the same other terms. Are. But yeah, the new Scrum guy would be a developer, but I prefer team member. Jeff and and Ken have said before, like the names are not so awesome that you have to use exactly these, but you need to have the function of exactly. the roles. Like we've seen that in, in Edu Scrum and and other ad adaptations of the system, so that's cool. Yeah, to hear and, that. I, and, I, and I always freak my consultants out who are pretty much they're purists, right? You know, they they really want it, and I'm like, I don't care what terms you use, <laughs> use whatever. They get very. Well, you, you have a, a lot of things like this, JJ, where you know new paradigms of thinking start to become a little culty. Yeah, and then you can have people becoming like holding up the, you know, this is this is the only way, the only way. And uh, yeah. this is the only way we can have adaptation. No, there are many ways. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. People who are, you know, sort of religious purists of it, I just drive me crazy. It's, yeah. you know, because what happens is they're doing scrum to do scrum, not to do, get something done or to solve a problem. And that's the whole point. Yeah. It's not to do scrum. It's not to be agile. It's to solve problems, <laughs> you know, provide yeah. solutions, deliver value. Deliver. Exactly. It's like, we have the same thing in, in the 90s, the same time that Scrum was coming out, 1993, 1994, uh, another group of people out of Berkeley were studying scheduling in the construction industry, and they developed a system called the Last Planner System of Production Controls, which is also a pool system, which also limits work in progress. And, mm -hmm. and people today, fast forward, it's been over 20 years. It's almost as old as Scrum. I think it came out in 95. Uh, there are people that I bump into in our industry, and this is like a fringe thing too, like agile practice it's not widespread uh and they'll say like do you are you a purist in this system or do you just phone it in or like and where are you in this and they're always trying to figure out like you do it by the book and then by the book when it came out in the 90s the people that wrote it had given examples and it's become like a cargo cult one of right. the examples that they gave was they they gave the spreadsheet to do a, a short-term schedule so everybody thinks that when they're in this part of the framework they have to have a spreadsheet and this is totally not true. It's a, it turns into a cargo cult and the founder yeah, one of the founders is still alive and, and he's like, I'm so past that. Like, I don't know why people do it. And then it's what, you know, you talk about in your book of like the rules, like it, when you were at NPR and you wanted to have two shows back to back. So I was down running morning edition. Uh, Cause like when I was, when I wasn't in Baghdad, I was sort of a fix it guy at NPR. I reported to the CEO and he would just send me around to fix things. And uh, so the morning edition is having some problems. And so I went down there uh, to produce the show that morning. And the first morning I was there and there was, I wanted to do two interviews in a row, what we call two ways. And the morning edition staff, which obviously kind of resented me because I was the fix it guy. Um, <laughs> JJ, you just don't get morning edition. We can never do two interviews in a row. We have to have an interview and then a produced piece because that's just the sound. That's who we are, JJ. 
You know, you don't get it. That's what our listeners expect. And I say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I know, JJ, look, it's a rule. And they pull the three ring binder off the shelf and say, see, it's written down right here. And it was, I was like, I'm going to let you people get away with this today, but I'm going to find out who wrote that rule. It took me like three or four days to track down this guy named Jay Kernis, who was the first executive producer of Morning Edition back in 1978. And this is like 2004, 2005. And I called him up and said, Jay, what's with this rule? And he goes, oh, JJ, the reel-to-reel tape machines couldn't rewind fast enough, so we had to make sure that we spaced these things out. And I was like, we haven't used reel-to-reel tape machines in, like, I don't know, 15 years. <laughs> <laughs> but they internalized the rule and mm-hmm. made it something that it wasn't. And it, it said, oh, it's part of us, rather than realizing <laughs> it's just a rule. Rules, as I say a lot, rules have to fight for their lives. Because rules are usually in organizations, something went wrong. And I said, well, let's make sure that doesn't happen again. And they come up with a rule that is completely appropriate for that time, right? It's like, oh, wow, we really don't want to get fined by the SEC $100 million again. Let's put a rule into place. But then, you know, 20 years later, everyone's still doing the rule and it doesn't matter anymore. It makes no sense. Right. So we're letting the the rule set win. We're letting the robots win rather than, you know, actually applying critical thinking. People are following the rules instead of listening to each other. Yeah. We're letting the rules dictate to us. I think it was it was almost poetic, JJ, in the book where you talked about in the Scrum Field book, you said you when you don't prioritize and, and be clear on why you're doing things, you're letting the most entry level junior person make the decision because they're not getting the direction from the organization. And you're just gambling on what they're going to do. Yeah, that's when everything's top priority. Nothing's top priority, so the people get to pick what to work on. If you have like, okay, well, you know, we have 10 top priorities, which, you know, makes absolutely no sense. Because uh, the word, I write in the book, I even looked into it. So the word priority comes from the, you know, through the French, but originally from the Latin a priori, which means it comes before. And so priorities <laughs> with an S wasn't even a word until the 1940s, because it makes no sense. You can't have more than one. Yeah, and we can only do one thing at a time. Yeah. Yeah. Multitasking is a total myth. Yeah. Like as we're talking right now, I've got uh, like three panels of stuff on my screen. And if uh-huh. I, if I look at anywhere besides you, it all goes, it all falls apart on my side. <laughs> in yeah, my no, mind. Completely. no, and the, the, you know, I am jealous of my children who, have, you know, obviously, you know, mastered zoom in this, <laughs> but they are like doing video and they're in the chat. And listen, I do a lot of video these days. I cannot do that because I just lo- completely lose. They they seem to be able to do it. I've been to a lot of uh, virtual conferences this year. We just closed down uh, Scrum Gathering Brazil and people were messaging in the chat. You can kind of get a feel. I've been to enough conferences this year, JJ, because of COVID virtually that you can get a, you can get a flavor for how old people are based on how heavy the chat gets used. Yeah. The, the younger the group, the heavier the chat, people are chatting while the presentations are happening live. And then occasionally you'll get uh, older people saying in the chat, like, it's distracting. Like, it's so distracting to them that they have to write it down. <laughs> They're distracted. They're like, please, everybody stop chatting and just watch the show. Like, yeah, like no, you can, you can so maximize your screen. Don't look at the chat. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I'm definitely, I'm old, but you know, I, but I, I mean, I see the chat as, I mean, obviously people get value from it. So who am I to say, don't use it. Yeah. I've been to some of your meetings at Scrum Inc. And there's always a contingent of people in the Zoom chat messaging constantly. Yeah. And I'm having to watch like, you know, when you get, I think when you get beyond 12 people, it's almost impossible to pay attention. I'm really glad that in the, in the updates to Zoom, they, 
create and some of the other platforms have it too or you can move the tiles at least if you're in gallery view you can pin yeah. like i'm going to keep the person who's going to speak the most in the one place so i know where they are exactly no exactly no i do that all the time i love to be able to move the tiles because otherwise i'm looking around the screen this you know because also yeah. i have a big screen and so yeah. I, I can look over here i'm looking at the screen you know but it doesn't look like i you were on location somewhere earlier this year and we did the product owner class and you had a, a whiteboard or a, a flip chart behind you. And you seem to be like myself. I love the, the tangible. Where, let me see, move my camera. See, there's my scrum board over there. It's on my door. Bam. Right now. A lot of people always ask JJ when they're, when they're coming to the system right away, before they even know what scrum is, before they can even tell you what 353 means, they say, what's the best digital solution for scrum? Ugh. Do you do you get that question? Oh, all the time. And, and I, I have my standard answers. They all suck. They all suck. And they all suck for the same reason. Listen, you got to have a tool these days, but you have to go look for it. What you want is an information radiator where you don't have to go open up your laptop or open the computer and go to a, a browser. So what I actually do is I replicate my electronic board physically. Then I can actually see like the electronic board say, oh, wow. I go in a day later and say, oh, I did do that. So, But it's like the work isn't as visible. Right. I was, I was, I would like it to be. I also say I really highly recommend figuring out what your process is with the simplest thing possible. Like use a spreadsheet or something, and then figure yeah. out what tool matches the way you work, rather than wrapping yourself around the axle to match the way the tool says you should work. Because yeah. I see it all the time. Well, Jira says we have to do this. This is like, why are you letting the robots dictate to you? <laughs> it's like you know, just do what works for you. And so, like at Scrum Inc. We, you know, at the moment, we don't have a common tool because different teams have different needs. They have to be visible and you have to be able to spit out a CSV file so like we can do some analysis. But other than that, use whatever tool you want. Yeah, that's lovely. This is, that's freedom to the people right there, JJ. Well, there, there is movement to standardize the tool. I don't know. I mean, I'll let the teams figure, decide if they really want to standardize the tools or not. A lot of software companies love the, the proposition of being bought by the larger company. You know, like it's only, yeah. they're counting down the days until Oracle makes them an offer. <laughs> just bought slack the other day for like 28 billion dollars something like that salesforce yeah i was like when i saw that i almost didn't even believe that it was real it's like what it's like why were, were they even for sale hey 28 billion dollars <laughs> everyone's for sale <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know someone came off to me 28 billion dollars for scrum Inc. i mean i'd have to seriously consider <laughs> <laughs> you have to think. You have to sit down at least and think twice, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's yeah. That's a number is so high, JJ. I can't even think about it right now. Yeah, no, it's, that's like one of those numbers that you know, the human mind cannot really wrap their heads around. That's incredible. And uh, yeah, I use a tool that uh, was built by the developers use Scrum to build it, which is Trello, which eventually uh -huh. got bought by Atlassian, which also uses Scrum, which is awesome too. Which also and makes Jira. Right? <laughs> yeah, they do. And it's uh and there's a little bit of competition there for the two. It's like, you know, one's like heavy duty developer tool. Get your process down first and then find the tool like right. you do. I do the same thing. People always get annoyed, like, but we know you use Trello. Like, yeah, but I don't tell people that you should just use it. There are reasons why I use it and yeah. it might not work for you. I use Pivotal Tracker, which is pretty you know, it's not quite as lightweight as Trello, but it's pretty lightweight and it's fine. You know, yeah. you know, you know, it works. Uh, a lot of the consulting teams use Jira because a lot of our clients use Jira. And mm -hmm. so they're like, we want to be in the environment that our, our customers are in. Um, some of them use uh, LeanKit, 
Some of them use, uh, there's a uh, Microsoft Azure uh, tool that some, some of them use. Planner. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then there's, you know, there Mondays, which is always like, they have the, the sweetest name, like Mondays. What are we yeah. doing? <laughs> like, I remember that I first saw the, that advertisement, I'd get emails. I get emails like every day, like, Hey, check out this tool. And oh yeah. I have, I've already got the boilerplate response. Cause it's like the 55th email, but Brino, keep them coming. People keep sending yeah. them my way. Like it's cool to see the new stuff coming out. Like Mondays that I see it as it is now. From when I looked at it a couple of years ago, it's radically different. So it's cool to see these different companies innovating. Yeah, well, they're you know they're iterating towards a better, better product. Thank you for sharing your transformational moment when you finally were like, "All right, I'm going to listen." What is the Scrum thing? And it, yeah. and it transformed for you. A lot of people listening, especially in the design construction industry, where waste is depending on who you ask, what survey you read, it could be anywhere from fifty percent of what you do is non-value added to the customer, all the way up to eighty percent. So it's, sometimes it's more valuable if people just didn't even come to work you yeah. know, based on from the client's perspective. I'm not saying that these smart people aren't doing things intentionally. They're not. They're a function of the system and the structure that they're in. But JJ, I'd love with all of your experience, all the companies you work with, all the successes, what would you tell somebody who's watching this or listening that they're frustrated in their work? What advice would you give to them? The first thing is prioritize. Don't try to do everything at once. and you, know, you don't have to ask permission. You, know, you just you know it's like what's the most important thing? Get that to done, and then go on to the next thing. And of course, you want to have bite-sized pieces. You don't want okay, the, the most important thing is going to take me six months. You want it to take a week or two. Yeah. It's like oh well, we have to have a six-month plan. It's like well, maybe you do, but what are you going to do tomorrow to get you closer? And what's the most important thing? And how do you get feedback to know that you're right? Prioritization, rapid feedback. That's, those are the really the most important things. Because I see people spend six months a year, you know, working on something and no one actually wants it by the time they're done. So you want this rapid feedback and prioritization. And, and in construction, you know, you know that industry and I you know, know it only as an observer of, you know, people building highway overpasses and wondering why it takes so long. <laughs> why? You know, why does it take five years? I'm sure there's good reasons, but-, but There's it's, a lot of waiting. It's unnecessary. There's a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. And so like one industry working with this is oil and gas. And what I've learned about uh, oil extraction and gas extraction is it's a lot of waiting. And it's basically, can you get the right people and the right equipment at the right times? And then uh, a colleague of mine is getting Fabian Schwartz down in Columbia is working with uh, a gas company. You know, they're extracting from this gas field. And they were really, they took them like 18 days was sort of like their average for drilling a new well. And the fastest they'd ever done it was like 10 days or something like that. And by just prioritizing and making everything transparent where everything is, they went from 18 days to an average of six days. Incredible. Three times faster. Because they were talking those wait times. How can we get those wait times down? And it wasn't they didn't invent any new technology. They just didn't. It was just looking at the wait times and saying, where can we cut down? the wait times. Oh, thank you for that, JJ. Have you had people come to you? Cause if you work with organizations for a little bit, it takes time for the learning to, yeah. to sink in and people to get the repetitions. I think Joe, you know, he, he shared a story about bringing people into a garage and he was teaching scrum by having people build a car, like some, uh, plane engineers at some point could have been a sob story. Probably was a sob story. Sob the, the avionics group that makes airplanes, but can you think of any stories, JJ, where people came to you after 
they'd work with your company for a little bit? What kind of things did they tell you? What kind of feedback do you get? Do you guys get from these big companies like the bank or some of the other non-software companies? The feedback I get is, is surprise at how effective it is and how quickly it is. That is what I really get. It's the realization that they were trapped in a system of their own making and it was a choice they could make to work differently and they could have huge impact incredibly quickly. Cause that is one of the really great things about scrum is because, you know, it's not just construction, <laughs> you know, yeah. 80% waste. It's just about everywhere. And, but if you just remove stop, some of the stupid stuff, like everyone knows, Oh, we should prioritize. We should focus. We should not get distracted. We should, everyone knows that that's a better way to work. Right. Everyone knows it, but they don't do it. And what Scrum does is give you a framework that allows you to do it. And it, it takes discipline. It's not easy, but very quickly you can get results very quickly. And that's what really impresses me. And I think that that's what I hear from uh, my clients and the people I talk to is if if you do it and you're disciplined about it, and you're committed to it, you can get dramatic results very, very fast within months. That's incredible. Surprise. I'm surprised at the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and JJ, I love what you said too, just now you said you don't have to ask permission. So for everybody out there that's working in any kind of organization, even if a family, like my family knows that when we do anything in my mind, invisibly, I'm using the scrum framework right. for all the things we do all the time. Right. Even when I use other methodologies, I'm still bringing in what I know from scrum and following that process because it is so doggone reliable. It's incredible. Yeah, it, works it works every time. So I always tell Jeff, like, Jeff, I'm trying to find where it doesn't work. And every and when I work with teams, especially the more skeptical teams, I always tell them, like, it's worked every time so far. I'm excited that you might be the first team it doesn't work with. But they always no, disappoint me, JJ. It always works. No, I, I used to tell people it works everywhere. But now I don't do that because people are like, oh, it can't work. And I said, listen, if you find a place that doesn't work, call me. And I will come and write a paper about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it does. yeah. We've had uh, a lot of people writing, you know, in the traditional, and I, I, I came up and I got my project management professional certificate. I studied the, the 12 areas of project management and sat down for a four hour test and had a study for months to, to this way. And I'm like, wow, do, do projects really organize this way? And the answer is no, they don't. They don't actually do all 12 of those functions that are each like a book long, but I still maintain the credential JJ, because there's been a shift even in project management circles to become more agile. And there are quite a few people, quite a few PMPs that are writing about, talking about and using scrum every day in project management around the world in many different industries. But what I wanted to ask you is with, with all of that, you still get these people in you know holding on to the old way and the old way was only project management as a profession has only been around in the last hundred years it didn't the profession didn't exist in the 1800s it's it's new but people are holding on to it like it's been here forever and i just saw uh, uh someone had wrote this has happened to me twice this year jj and i want to know does this happen to you someone wrote a paper about these traditional methods and one of the people that read the paper who knew the author tagged me in and said Hey, what do you think, Felipe? And then they got us so that we were having a debate on LinkedIn about this traditional method. And the person in their paper had just talked all kinds of smack on 
agile is garbage it's a fad it's going to disappear nobody actually does scrum people that defend scrum always just reference you back to the scrum guide and they don't tell you how they actually do it we went back and forth and and if, if anyone's listening they want to find those posts i'll point you to it but i want to ask you jj because you have an entire organization dedicated to scrum do you guys get pulled into fights like that online I try not to because, you know, like you know, sort of the standard, my standard belief is, you know, don't feed the trolls. Um, <laughs> but it, uh, it's like, hey, man, if that's working for you, fantastic. If you're getting all the value you want, if you're delivering value more quickly, your customers are happy and your projects are successful. Awesome. Keep doing that. If it's working, you know, why bother? The thing is, it's not a theoretical debate. This is what gets me. It's, uh, you know, I'm not interested in debating theory. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in debating reality because, you know, that's what, that's what actually is. It's, you know, okay, well, we took this project and it became better and we've extracted out into a framework that can be applied everywhere, but apply it, try it. And if it doesn't work, don't do it. Uh, I saw this speech by one of our, my, one of the leaders, one of our clients at the beginning. And it was really amazing. Yes, we are going to try this for seven sprints. We're going to do all in. And if it doesn't work, we'll just go back to the way we were doing things. But we're going to try it for seven sprints. And they're doing week-long sprints. And they did. And you know what? It was hard for them. But at the end of those seven sprints, I said, do we want to keep going? It's like, absolutely. There's no way we could ever go back. Can't go back. Can't go back. And it's, if if traditional project management is working for it's not that it doesn't never works. Of course it does. Otherwise people wouldn't do it. Um, you know, yeah. in my experience, you're going to get better results using scrum. That's my experience. Your mileage may vary, but I would encourage you to try it, try an experiment just to see rather than insisting on, well, there's this theoretical thing in the, in my mind about how to do project management. Listen, I've never gotten a PMP. I don't even know what those 12 areas are. It strikes me as ludicrous, but rather, I'm much more interested in what actually happens than in theory. Yeah. That's how I learned my lesson after the, the first one I came at it with, I don't know something here. I didn't know who the person was. So I, I came open and said, tell me. And I, the first question I asked about what kind of results are you getting typically using your system? They deflected, 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 never gave an answer. And I said, okay, I've, I'm actually a PMP. Like I studied, I passed, I practiced, I continued to do the education, but then I used this agile method called scrum, even before there was a, this thing called agile. And uh, I've only been using it with these hands, getting dirty with it for seven years. And I said, it's always worked. We always deliver faster. We beat all the schedules that all the Gantt charts that people create, we sail past those. It's incredible. Like how much faster we sail past those. And I was like, let's just talk about what are you getting? What are you not getting? And I don't tell people like, you don't have to do scrum. You don't have to. If what you're doing is working, tell me about it. I want to know too. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how can, what can we bring in to the super lightweight framework? You can still be successful while your clients and then keep your people engaged. I think that's the, the magic trick that a lot of companies are struggling with is that employee engagement and teams that have, as soon as you touch scrum, I, I haven't really seen people like back away from it, even in our organization, except one time, one time people had to back away from it. And there were, it had nothing to do with the customers. 
it had to do with other things called ego. Yeah. I mean, you know, human dynamics are real. They're real. <laughs> They're real. And, 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 you know, and change is hard. And people, as we were talking about earlier, people are afraid. Yeah. People are afraid. And you know what? It's a completely rational fear. It is. And moving through fear into trying to do something new, that's tough. The human nature is not to do that. It's to, you know, you're afraid, as we were talking about earlier, the Otto Scharmer is the, the, the professor at MIT, the Sloan School. There we go. This. And, uh, you know, you just go and you download, you go back to old habits because you're afraid. Of course you are. And then to go into the future, to be a leader saying, okay, we're going to do something new. And I don't know what the ultimate destination is, but I can see it in the mist. That's hard. And that takes bravery. Yeah, and I remember JJ, when, when I started doing this, I had to have a talk, an executive sat me down and told me that, uh, you know, this could negatively affect your career. Are you sure you want to do this? And I said, I can't do it the other way anymore. It's killing me. So even though I was afraid, I was like, I'd rather jump into the unknown or like so many people say, get as close to chaos and creativity as I can. Cause it's just, Hey, it's way more exciting. Like I think, Oh, I could get fired today. <laughs> and I remember your dad actually told me JJ, he said, when he, when he met me in 2016, he said, Felipe, are you aware that you could be fired? I was like, you know, Jeff, I actually hadn't thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, we were already like a couple glasses of wine deep. So I was feeling like liquid courage, brave. And I said, yeah. it doesn't matter if I get fired. <laughs> and then, you know, and then, what your family say. When you yeah. say. <laughs> and then later, yeah, my, my wife and my son had a strong opinion about, you know, <laughs> do I need to have a job? And the answer is yes. And I still have, I told Jeff when I saw him again this year, haven't been fired yet, Jeff, but it's still early today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Listen, getting fired sucks, but, you know, <laughs> life's too short to work in some sort of soul killing. Life is just too short. Yeah. And trust me, if you're a scrum master, there are a lot of jobs out there for scrum masters. There are a lot of jobs out there. For scrum it's masters. incredible how, uh, you know, you, this, this framework idea created an entire industry that didn't exist. I mean, yeah. there are. I remember when I went to the training and there are people there that their job was scrum master. I was just thinking like, how could this be a full-time job? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and now today you've got, uh, you know, product owners out there. You've got scrum masters and you're always going to have people on the team. Somebody has got to do something, the work and yeah, scrum masters. Hey, everybody, scrum masters work and scrum mastering is hard. Yes. It is not an easy job. I know there's a lot yeah. of, People look at scrum masters like, well, they don't actually do anything. Like you have no idea. I've sometimes I share with the teams, you know, what a scrum master does to sometimes protect the team so that they can actually work. Yeah. It's a very dangerous place to be in. Yeah. Scrum masters, you know, they're, they're the people who can get fired. They, they frustrate people. Yeah. They, they ask they, yeah. lots of questions and yeah. they make work visible and they reduce hierarchy. I mean, it's. Some people don't like that. They don't like it. Yeah, a lot of people, JJ, <laughs> a lot of people don't like it. I've been kicked off of so many different initiatives over the years 
because we start getting a certain way and having all these success and it's the team's success. I always tell people like, you know, if we do something and it's successful, that's yours because you guys did the work. I, I'm very clear on the three roles and I, I know what my job is. I'll take, I'll take the brunt of it. I'm a big guy. I'll take the abuse from uh, management. I'm happy to do that. I, I, we're all on a first name basis, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the same with the clients too. How have clients responded to, like, have you heard any feedback? So you're in an organization helping them. Do you, do they ever share with you what their clients tell them? Like the before and after type of conversation? Sure. Um, <clears throat> listen, I mean, where I interact with corporations right now is at a pretty high level, right? At the executive level, the C-suite level often. And those people don't care about Scrum. They care about getting stuff done because that's what they're on the hook for. And, oh, getting more stuff done, I'm in. Do Scrum to do Scrum, who cares? <laughs> you know, you know, who, who cares? And that's the selling point is not, hey, and it's not even, hey, you're going to have more engaged people. They want to have more engaged people because they'll get more stuff done. You know, they want results. And they get results by having happy, engaged people, focus, prioritization. And that's what they care about. And that's what they find because they say, oh, because we are able to deliver value to our organization or to our customers, we're getting more things done and we're getting more value and we're getting feedback that we're doing the right thing. And by doing it. And that's what they care about is results. Right on. Yeah. I like that, JJ. That's a perfect close. I want to respect your time. You know, thank you so much, JJ. You're going to have to come back on the show again. Cause this still have like 30 more questions to ask. Yeah, you. This is really fun. Thanks for inviting As of me today. Yeah. No, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day, JJ. I'm going to finish the book and then use that as my precipice to harass you again and get you back on here. And we'll Anytime. And we're going to go deeper into fear next time. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that one. <laughs> I know you do. Very special thanks to my guest. I'm Felipe Engineer Manriquez. The EBFC show is created by Felipe and produced by a passion to build easier and better. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Let's go build.